0: And so I remember um, being surrounded by the kids, and one of the young, young kids, uh, kind of a tribe leader, um, grab, grabbed me by the arm, looked me in the face. He pulled me low to make eye contact, and he said these words. He said, sir, thank you for visiting my country. I'm so sorry it's in the shape that it's in. I don't want to beg you for food, but we haven't had anything to eat in days. Is there anything we can do to work for you so we can get something to eat? And I remember um, having no clue to respond to this moment. I've always felt immensely. I was born with several phosphorus.
1: I have always loved so smoke. I was told not to take risks. I may be blind, but I teach people how to sun and I'm proud to be an individual. This podcast is for you, the unconventional leader.
0: Maybe you are the one that everyone discounted.
1: Maybe you struggle with fear and self-doubt. We are here to empower the next generation of self-starters to step up, use their voice, and make an impact in this world. You're listening to The Weekly Parody. Hey, welcome to today's episode. If this is your first time listening, my name is Heather Parody, and I am your host, and I am so excited to share with you this powerful, powerful interview. We have Chris Marlowe on the show. Chris, in 2007, uh, met a starving young orphan living in an abandoned gas station in Zimbabwe. That encounter compelled him to start Help One Now, and he dedicated his life to seeking justice by empowering leaders and organizing tribes to launch global movements that do good. Uh yeah, how is that for an intro? I I just got done with this with this interview and I I've been thinking so much about this topic. Because I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this term. It's called it's called the bystander effect. And it's a social psychology term. I think I've mentioned it before on the podcast, but the idea is that responsibility diffuses across a crowd. So what that means is is let's say you see an injustice. We have a tendency as humans to assume someone else is going to take care of it. Someone else is going to do something about it. It's actually been studied in psychology that we don't take the responsibility ourselves when we see something, we diffuse that to other people. It's why you see people all the time filming like an injustice happen and post it on social media. And everybody's like, why did no one step in and help? Why did no one do anything? Everybody's posting about it, but no one's doing anything. That's what it is. It's this bystander effect. And I've been super fascinated by that concept over the past couple of years since I first heard about it. And when I ran across Chris's work help one now. I immediately thought of this because what he is doing in the world is he was he was incredibly moved by something that he saw in Zimbabwe. But what he did is he didn't just say, man, that's sad and assume someone else was going to help. He stepped in and did something about it. He started helping in a very small, tangible way. He breaks that down for us in this episode and shares with us how we too can step into our calling by small, simple but before we get started hit that subscribe button in itunes wherever you listen to podcasts would love if you left us a review if you've been listening for a while and you've got something to say about the show please do so would love to hear from you but yeah let's go ahead and just dive into this episode with chris
0: yeah i mean i was i literally was in my mid-30s right and like just bought the house have the cars I was a church planner in Austin, Texas. And so our, our church was going amazing. I had a great group of friends. Uh, and I think one of the, you know, one of the challenges we're all facing is like how to become content, but also not be content at all. And I think there's this wrestling that we all face, right? It's so easy to like to get comfortable. And I think what I've recognized now, you know, as I get a little older is like the the more we can shy away from comfort, the more significant life we will live. But that's a hard decision, right? And so for four or five years, I had like this um, this kind of this gnawing in my heart to like to do something more significant, to explore the world, to understand different cultures. To um, and I think new media and new storytelling was constantly like in our face of all the pain that was happening in the world. And thankfully, and I always say this, I think the um, the, the creatives are the new you know those are the new poets and prophets of our generation. And so they basically tell powerful stories, and they get folks like me at the time. To pay attention. And I had all the different excuses. Um, I was, you know, father and a husband and running a church, and my wife owned a business. And, you know, but ultimately I had a friend who moved to Cape Town, South Africa. And for five years, he invited me to come visit. And for five years, I gave him um, probably one of the worst excuses we could give in our lifetime. And that's, I'm too busy. Because ultimately, we're probably not as busy as we think we are. And what I realized at the moment is I was not prioritizing what it means to live a life of legacy and meaning I was prioritizing what it meant to live a life of kind of the whirlwind of the day-to-day chaos um, that was happening and so after five years of saying no my friend obviously was very persistent and we did we went down to Cape Town and spent you know five days in in Cape Town and then kind of the aha light bulb moment for me was taking about a 40-hour trip from Cape Town into Zimbabwe it's 2007, at the time, Zimbabwe was literally on the verge of a civil war, and it was kind of a closed country. Um, No one was going in, no one was going out. Matter of fact, when we were crossing the border from South Africa to Zimbabwe, um, the police on both sides um, literally asked us not to go in. And so I remember that moment of saying, you know, I'm not sure if this is really a good idea or not. Um, But eventually we went in, and um, five hours into our travel into Zimbabwe, it's 4 a.m. in the morning. And we, my friend John, he was a Zimbabwe, um, Zimbabwean, uh, high power local leader in Zimbabwe doing this tremendous work. Um, he asked if we would stop at a gas station. He said he wanted to check in some kids. And so I remember this moment. I grew up just outside of Oakland, California. And so like in my mind, like we don't stop at a gas station at 4 a.m. It's a bad idea <laughs> anywhere. And he's like, no, I have to stop at this gas station. Um, I need to check in these kids because um, he lived about an hour away from the gas station. So it wasn't easy for him to get there. And so ultimately we did, we, we drove the van into the gas station and what I saw for the first time in my life, and it was just horrific, it was about 80 kids, um, all between the ages of three and eight years old, and at the time my daughters were five and seven, and these kids were literally sleeping on a gas station. And I realized these were the orphans who um, every night they would come um, and gather together and live at this gas station and then during the day they would scatter and try to figure out a way to live and survive. And so it was like this, this, it was a kind of a makeshift orphanage that was led by an 8 nine year old boy. Um, I remember getting out of the van and um, being surrounded by these kids. Um, many of them were naked. Many of them were on what we would call now edge of life kids. Um, they were weeks away from, from really death. And so every day was a survival for these kids. And so I remember um, being surrounded by the kids and one of the young, young kids, uh, kind of a tribe leader, um, grabbed me by the arm, looked me in the face. He pulled me low to make eye contact, and he said these words. He said, sir, thank you for visiting my country. I'm so sorry it's in the shape that it's in. I don't want to beg you for food, but we haven't had anything to eat in days. Is there anything we can do to work for you so we can get something to eat? And I remember um, having no clue how to respond to this moment. But yet what I've learned about the moment is – we will live the most significant and meaningful lives if we're willing to allow ourselves to have these hard moments where we don't know how to respond, but it shakes up our life. And so I always tell people, I feel like at that point, I feel like God dropped me in the middle of hell, slapped me in the face, and said, Wake up, these people are in need, and you have a way to help them. And so that moment, I told that young child no, and we got back in the van and we drove off. Um, but that was a, a life changing moment for me, and that kind of started the movement of doing good as simple.
1: Can you talk to me about you're in. Texas and you're doing good work and there was still something kind of tugging at you. I think I hear that so much. And honestly, I've felt that way too. And I've said it to myself where it's really easy to look at good work. It's not bad. You're not doing anything wrong. You're like, oh, I'm doing good here. And there is still something else pulling at you, but there's more, there's more, there's more. And it's easy to justify well, hey, I'm planning churches in Texas and I'm influencing yeah. people here. How did yep. you, I guess, transition from yes, I am doing good work, but there's something else calling me?
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, I think here's what's really, really tricky about that question. I'm not running a nonprofit is no more significant than setting on a cubicle every day. Right. And so this is I think the wrestling that we get in. It's really an individual journey and kind of what, you know, whether if you have a faith-based approach, what they're a calling. If you have, you know, if you, you know, if you're coming at it for more of a legacy, like I want to live a meaningful life, but ultimately we all have this one thing. It's a gift that we can give back to the world. It could be a gift of entrepreneurship, a gift of writing, creativity. It could be a gift of, you know, being a community builder. We all have a gift. Um, And finding that gift is really a lifelong journey. And for me, the church plant wasn't the end of my final gift that I could give to the world. And so it was a significant thing, and it was meaningful, and it was powerful, and I loved it. I was completely fulfilled. Um, But for my personal journey, there was one more step that I needed to take to really lean into my, like, calling in life. And so I think all of us were just trying to figure out that journey. Uh, And, you know, in your 20s, you think in your 30s, I'll know it. But really, it's in your 30s that you figure it out. You figure out, like, okay, I got, like, another – 15 or 20 or 25 years of youthful living, hopefully with no health issues or or tragedies. And you start leaning into, um, you know, what that final calling is on your life. And so for those listening, like do not think you have to start a nonprofit or move to Africa. Um, What you have to figure out is like, what is the biggest way you can make a difference in the world based on your gifts, talents, passions, and resources.
1: Right. So we kind of entered the conversation talking about how we have this, brokenness around some subject or a people group or something and we feel almost paralyzed and overwhelmed with how do we even start this so when you when you came back home and you had that little boy's image in your head and this is such a huge huge thing to tackle what were some of the tactical first steps that you took
0: that's fascinating um it's 2007 and going basically into 2008 and of course, if you remember those times, um, like literally, the economy was falling apart. Like just, you know, you know, from it, it was amazing one second, and like literally, like the next month, the world's like falling apart. First massive global economic meltdown we've had in in a long time, from like a global scale. So I remember, um, first of all, just thinking like, I do not, like, there's just no way that I can start a nonprofit at this time. I think the question we begin, you know, we begin to as we lean into our final calling in life, or the most important work that we can do, there will always be uh, an obstacle or a resistance that would try to force you from not going into the most important work you can do. And um, for me, that that resistance was I'm going to fail, and I didn't want to fail. I'm, you know, I'm in my mid 30s. I have kids. I have house. I have responsibilities. And but what became greater wasn't me failing in my own life. It was me failing that kid and those. And what he represented, you know, 150 million orphans who really need folks to step up and um, walk with them and help them find their hope and their future and their calling. And so for me, I had here and here's where I realized um, the moment I was beginning to think there's no way I can make a difference in the orphan crisis. And then uh, a good friend of mine said, well, you don't have to make a difference in the orphan crisis globally. There's just these 32 kids in Zimbabwe that you spent five days with. What if we just made a difference in those 32 kids' life? And that was, was an aha moment. I was like, oh my gosh, I could do that. Like, I know with my influence and my, the infrastructure and our friend groups, like, I can make a huge difference for those 32 kids. And the first thing I did was I sat down with a good friend of mine. Her name is Jen Hatmaker. She was, um, she had, she was a writer and an author in and, and and, and Austin, and she was building a, a pretty unique following. Uh, the first thing I said was like, hey, Jen, do you think you can help me care for these 32 kids and get your community involved? And we both, she said yes. And so I had a team of people that was ready to jump in. And uh, we just began to take one small step to help 32 kids. And now, 10 years later, we'll celebrate our 10-year anniversary. And we're helping about 50,000 people a day throughout the world. And so you can't help 50,000 until you figure out a way to help the 32. And so by starting small, I realized it began – to empower me to not feel paralyzed by the, the bigness, if you will, for lack of a better word, of the problem and focus on these 32 kids. So whatever you're trying to accomplish in life, start small and just keep moving forward.
1: Yeah. So what I heard you say was you really identified the resources you already had in your hand, like your network, and was yes. just faithful with that.
0: Yeah. And here's the thing. Sometimes you have to be innovative um, in the most creative ways, right? And so the economy is falling apart. We... I needed to figure out how to care for these 32 kids because they were on the edge of life kids. They didn't have, you know, they didn't have a long time. They needed quick resources. And so one of the things I realized is um, what did I already possess that can make a difference so that could give me time to figure out the long-term solutions? And so in my house, we recognized, you know what? We have a lot of extra stuff. Um, What if we just started, what if we just did a garage sale? And so we did a garage sale, big garage sale. I had four or five friends participate. We raised a couple thousand dollars, and what that did were, was these kids who were live—they had when I left Zimbabwe, these kids had three weeks worth of food, and that was it. And they had no clue what they were going to do after three weeks. Um, when I did that garage sale party, they had six months worth of food. So I knew the kids were going to live. They had a housing. They had plenty of love and care from the community. So that gave me the window that I needed. We took that simple sample and built a prototype in the beginning days because economics were kind of falling apart, and we called it garage sale for orphans. And so through Jen's um, influence, we just began to promote, hey, y'all, what if we all just do garage sale parties um, and we just donated the proceeds? Then we, we raised almost a million dollars the first five years, just literally through everyday normal people saying, you know what? I'll give up a weekend. I'll get my family involved. I'll get my small group involved. I'll get you know, I'll get, you know, my friends involved and we'll throw garage sales for orphans around the world and we'll donate the proceeds. And that like built, that literally helped, that rescued 60 kids from trafficking, that, um, put water wells all over the world. That helped thousands of kids go to school. That helped hundreds of thousands of kids actually eat in the beginning days. Um, and so when you look back at that, it was just a simple way for us. It gave me enough time to figure out how to build a powerful organization that would last me in my lifetime. But I needed that that beginning. Uh, I needed that like beginning stages to help me have the time to think through the big picture.
1: So at that point, where, you know when you when you first had those thirty-two kids, kind of before you raised the million, when you were just saying, "Okay, I'm going to yeah. start one yard sale." At that point, did you envision starting this nonprofit and what it would become today, or did it just kind of naturally happen? What was your yeah. plan then?
0: Yeah, when I got on the plane, coming back from meeting the kid and spending time with those 32 other kids in Zimbabwe, I knew, I couldn't voice it this way, but I knew there would be a vocational shift. And I knew for me, this was like, oh man, I might have been training my whole life for this moment. Um, and it all made sense to me. Like I was a church, I wasn't really a great pastor. And I spent a lot of time in business. And I was in and, and the nonprofit space is like the perfect world for like, those two worlds to collide. Um, And I needed that. I'm really, I think more like a business person than a pastor to be quite frank. And so for me, it was like, okay, you know, the 15 years of training and education and experience. um, And oftentimes we want to be great so quickly, especially in our world of social media, where you can act like you're amazing at everything, but really you're not. And so I realized then that it just takes time and experience to really find you know what? You know, for lack of better, your final like calling—the most important gift you're going to give to the world. And so, but I, what I did was I took a year off—not off—I took a year to do a research program. I traveled. I spent time with significant leaders doing really amazing nonprofit work. And I just began to ask. The, I didn't want to go too quickly and let the emotions make a decision. I wanted to step away from the emotions and make sure this was a legitimate vocational shift. And I wanted it to be the last shift from my adulthood like I knew if I made this shift because life was too good there's no reason I mean we had a perfect amazing life doing really good significant work um but yeah so that was a moment I just took time to make sure I was making the right decision I had plenty of you know and and here's the thing if you're going to do anything great you're going to need a coach and you're going to need a great community of people to help guide you and if you don't have that you're probably not going to achieve your your, you know success at the highest of levels
1: yeah I'm glad you mentioned the the emotion part to it because I feel like emotion is, is so important. Obviously, we were created with emotion and it, it guides us in some way. But, but two, when that emotion kind of dissolves and things aren't going well and you're frustrated yeah. and nobody's paying attention and no matter how yeah. hard you try, you don't feel like that traction, whether you're working in a nonprofit or business or whatever it is, we all feel yep. that. Can you kind of help us through that? Like, cause you've been faithful with this for 10 years and I know now what, what it is, but I'm sure there were several years where it was Hmm. difficult. It was really difficult, especially I'm sure working with a volunteer base, people who get the mission high and then they come back and it's just kind of the motivation. How have you personally been able to kind of keep, keep in the, keep in this, not lose heart and then also motivate a team in the same way?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, when you kind of track back into those days and you recognize, um, you know, I think a couple things, if you don't build a base of a, of, of great friends and family and community, like you're going to be in trouble in life. And so we literally can't isolate ourselves, right? And so I had such a great mix of community folks um, in Austin from, you know, folks at my church, neighbors, other you know, leaders in the city. And so what helped me figure everything out was I made these decisions really with the healthy community involved and folks who were saying, you know what, okay, I think this is a good decision and I'm willing to sacrifice to help you achieve it. Um, and I think that's, that's when you know you're on the right track. When others are willing to help your dream become a reality. And so, you know, for, whether it was Jen with the garage show for orphans idea or whether it was someone like, you know, we had, you know, all kinds of people jump on board and say, we will help make a difference with you. And um, I remember those beginning days, I still remember the faces and the names. And um, when the earthquake in Haiti happened, I remember a t-shirt company in Austin saying, hey, we'll donate t-shirts. And we raised thousands of dollars just off proceeds of t-shirts. I remember like all of Austin getting behind that movement of like, if we buy a t-shirt, we literally can help Haiti. And then we get, so I think the most important thing we can do is realize emotions is, um, helps kickstart a lot of our dreams. But really, what helps prove if this is a true calling in your life is: Are you willing to do the hard work day in and day out? And the nonprofit space can be tricky because you you know often people see you know the you know the adventure side if you're on a trip or a gala or speaking. But 90% of our work is just really hard. It's not necessarily fun, um, and you know it's really challenging to constantly raise money and to tell stories. And yeah. um, and so I think any calling. You're going to be excited about the hard work just as much as you're going to be excited about, you know, some of the work that, you know, you kind of wake up for. Um, I remember even writing a book. Like, it's one thing to, like, release a book. It's another thing to, like, spend two years writing and editing a book. And Mm so folks say, I want to be a writer. Well, okay, but do you want to do the hard work that it takes to actually get a book out there? And so (laughs) so let the emotions kickstart you, but let the hard work be the foundation of your success.
1: That's so good. So good. Uh, You you talk about something called the impact matrix, which is gifts, talents, resource, passion. What is that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So here's the thing. We don't make a difference in the world by accident. Mm. I'll say it again. We don't make a difference in the world by accident. Here's what's fascinating. Everyone I know wants to make a difference. They want to leave a legacy. They want to live a life of meaning, but no one has a plan for it. No one even takes enough time to figure out what's the best way that they can make a difference. For some people, the best way to make a difference is to be an entrepreneur and raise a lot of money. For some people it's to be an author, for some people it's to be, you know, a stay at home mom or dad, for some people it's to be an activist, you know, pushing the needle forward. Um, it's, it's so, we all make a difference in a, in unique ways. And so I think it's very important for us to realize no matter where we're at, I think of the folks in my life who made a difference. It was a third grade teacher. Um, who gave me confidence. And then it was literally um, a fourth grade teacher who, like, I was almost kind of a homeless teenager who brought me into her life. She she didn't have resources. She just had an extra couch. And she was willing to say yes. And like she literally changed my life because of her generosity. And so, but she knew how to make a difference. It was through hospitality. She was willing to sacrifice her comfort to allow some random kid that her, her son knew in school. And so when I think about the impact matrix, it's four things. It's it's basically your gift set. We all have natural gifts that kind of create who we are. I mean, those gifts are, you were born with those gifts and those gifts need maturity and wisdom and experience. Um, But ultimately, you know, you have a gift that matters to the world or gifts that matter to the world and understanding your gift. For me, the gift of networking, I can network and build a huge community of people. And I know no matter what I'm doing in life, whether it's business or nonprofit or whatever, I can create a great network. It's just naturally always been what I did. So um, it's not even like, you know, in the faith-based, it's not even the spiritual gifts all the time. It's just this natural way, um, you know, that you're gifted. Talent is different. Talent is something you earn. You learn it, you know, you don't, we're not, no one's born to like play the guitar, right? Like if you want to pick up the guitar, you actually got to like practice. Or if you're an artist, my youngest daughter is an artist. She wasn't born an artist, but she just began to, create work and practice at it. And then she realized this was something that matters. And so talent is typically something you earn. Um, passion is the thing that keeps you up at night. And this is why a wide table is so important. We all have different passions and those passions matter. For me, it was justice um, and orphan care. And like now it's to empower families around the world. That's kind of the mission of helping now. For others, it could be writing or it could be, you know, it, it could be all sorts of other things that we're passionate about. And so. Um, you don't necessarily have to follow your passion. That could be a bad thing. Um, cause oftentimes, you know, some people can never find a passion and cause they're following the wrong things. And so, but I would say this, you have to be passionate about your life to really achieve the highest levels of success. And the fourth one are resources. And, you know, many folks who help drive the mission of help one now, or they have tremendous resources. They have networks of people. They have, um, you know, funds that they can use. They have, um, you know, knowledge and wisdom through education that they can give. So I think all the problems we solve for most of the problems we solve, it's not someone just writing a check. It could be someone helping to solve other problems like, you know, how to deal with, you know, government issues in Peru, like we're dealing with now. Well, that was a good lawyer friend of mine who stepped up and said, Oh, I know how to deal with that. Here's four things you can do to actually open the village. That's because he used basically, you know, his talent as a lawyer and his passion as a lawyer but also his resources as a lawyer um, that he had access to. And so the impact, so here's what I would say. As we have a financial plan, sometimes we have even, um, you know, a vocational plan. Um, We have a fitness plan, but we also need to have an impact plan or a doing good plan. Like how are you going to make a difference in the world? And it has to be thought through and it has to be intentionality behind it. And if we're willing to do that, then we'll build that into our, like, lifestyle and our ecosystem of what it means, you know, as we have however many days on earth we have. And you're seeing people that are really intentional with asking that question, and they start making a huge difference, whether it's locally or globally or both. And so that's what we're encouraging people. Like, you do not accidentally make a difference in the world. To make a true difference, you have to have intentionality, and you have to be willing to get up every day and work the plan um, so the plan can have fruit and, you know, can make an impact.
1: So good, Chris. So good. Before our last and Here's
0: question. some practical real quick. I'll, here's a practical. If you want to make a difference in your 20s, one of the worst things you can do is to get in debt, right? And so a lot of people aren't making a difference in the world because all they're doing in their 30s and 40s is trying to get out of debt because they messed it up in their 20s, right? They got into credit card debt. They were consumeristic. And so they, they purchased, they purchased, they purchased. And in their 30s, all they're doing is, you know, they're working a job and then a second job. And here's what we hear all the time. I wish I had enough money to sponsor a kid or to take a trip or to do this thing, but they're in debt. And so that's why having a plan is important, right? Like oftentimes when we recognize if we make the right decisions, we will make a huge impact in the world. So it's not just about us and like our dreams, but it's about us having the freedom and the ability to, um, to be agile enough to help other people along the way and to lean into our callings in life.
1: So good. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Where can people connect with you online? You have an awesome book. I'm in the middle of reading it right now. What can people connect with you? And how can people get involved? I know you have, you can sponsor a kid through your website. What else do you have going on?
0: Yeah. Yeah. You can, I mean, all my socials are Chris Marlow, C-H-R-A-S-M-A-R-L-O-W. It's the show notes, I'm sure. Yes. Um, HelpOneNow.org. Um, all spelled out. That's kind of the website for the organization. And then my website's ChrisMarlow.me. Um, we're actually relaunching that. But Ultimately, like here's, you know, love to connect with folks and um, yeah, follow the journey. It's exciting. Um, We have a great community and we have very simple ways for people to make a big difference in the world.
1: I love that. All of that will be linked in the show notes. Definitely check it out. My last question, Chris, our intention with this show is to raise up this next generation of what we call unconventional leaders. So people who are stepping outside of the box, going against the grain, doing the calling on their heart. But I wanted to ask you specifically about that word because we've mentioned it several times in this show. I throw it around sometimes on the podcast, but what does that mean to you personally? When you hear the word calling a calling on someone's life, what does that mean?
0: I think the question every human has to ask in their context that they live in is how do I live the best life possible? And when you answer that question, it doesn't really matter the ups and downs of life when you know you're living the best life possible. And so, and the best life possible isn't necessarily like an individualistic, my dreams, but the best life possible is, you know, when it's all said and done, and when, you know, we're in the final days of our life, what are we going to look back at and regret? And if you can figure out regret now, and you can stay in front of regret, then then you don't have to have those regrets. You can actually stay in the other side of regret, to live a life of meaning and purpose and intentionality and fulfillment. And so I think Help One Now globally we're literally invisible around the world. We have these seven brilliant leaders, they're African, South Americans, you know, Haitian and Dominicans and um, I learned they're all unconventional leaders doing the most spectacular amazing work possible. And I realized when we begin to ask deeper questions of why did we always do it this way? And so when we started Help One Now, people said there's no way you can empower local leaders and be invisible. No one does that. But it's like, well, I'm meeting brilliant, thoughtful leaders all over the world who are smarter than me and who live in that context. Why can't we not do that? And so a, before I started the org, I had a CEO one of the most significant nonprofits in the world tell me this. He said, you should start a nonprofit if you're willing to break all the rules. And so that's how we launched up One Now. And because he, had the, he was brave enough to give me good advice, and I was brave enough to Take that advice, run with it. We created something unique and different—not better, but it's unique and different. And it's because we uh, we listen to unconventional. People.
1: Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you have not subscribed yet, please head over to iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And hit that subscribe button. And also, if you have a second, leave us a review. Lastly, we have a private Facebook group. If you are looking for a tribe of like-minded leaders who are unconventional in their approach, but dedicated to making an impact, head over to Facebook and type in unconventional leaders, and we will be sure to add you. You guys have a great week.